This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, is sponsored by Economics. To quickly make sense of today's crop nutrition research and maximize your return on investment, visit nutrient-economics.com. That's economics with a K. Hi, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. I'm your host, Stephanie Crowley, Editorial Director of Top Crop Manager. Today, we're chatting about potassium management with Robert Mullen, the Director of Agronomy Sales for Nutrien. Robert, thanks for being here with us again today. Thank you for having me again, Stephanie. It's my pleasure. So let's dive right in. We've got lots to talk about in terms of potassium management in canola and in other crops too. Maybe you can start by discussing how potassium works in the soil and how it affects crops and soil. It really is going to depend upon where we're going to tar- target this conversation. So I'm, I'm going to start more from a, a Western Canada, the Prairie Province perspective. Um, boy, that was a lot of alliteration there. Sure. <laughs> sure. As, <laughs> I'm sure our, our, our listeners are enjoying that. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're dealing with the prairie provinces, we're we're talking about a soil that is is not exposed to to high rainfall amounts, and and we've also got a native soil that has a significant amount of of natural potassium in the minerals that make up that soil. Um, so the the two of those things combined, we we end up in a situation where we have a soil that has a fairly rich supply of potassium natively, and when you look at soil test results from from the prairie provinces. It's not unreasonable to see soils that have upwards of 500, 600 pounds of exchangeable potassium uh, per acre. That's a fairly significant amount of potassium. And on those soils, the likelihood of seeing a response to potassium fertilization is relatively small. So in the prairie provinces, highly unweathered soil um, derived from a soil that's relatively rich in potassium minerals. Uh, the, the likelihood of seeing potassium response relatively small as you move further east, obviously things are going to be a little bit different. Uh, we, we start to see a little bit less of, of a, at least a lower concentration of potassium containing minerals that are going to predominate the, the soil mineralogy that make up the soils that we're farming. And we also get into a little bit more rainfall. So as we think about how soils form and, and what and how that impacts nutrient availability, one of the first things that happens when we're, we have a high rainfall environment, one of the first things to go is potassium. So as you're, if you're talking about Ontario, where we're growing a lot of corn and soybeans, um, you're, you're going to start seeing a, a lot less potassium or l- at least lower potassium availability than what you would see com- uh, back out to west. So that's going to be a, an environment where you're going to have a much greater need for p- some level of potassium supplementation. Um, the other thing that, to consider, and um, I, I'm not sure if we we're going to discuss this later on, but the, the other thing that, that really plays into this is that the farmer is actually executing on the ground. So if we're talking about the traditional Western Canada pulse crop, grass crop, oil seed, um, three crop rotation. Uh, specifically, if that oil seed is, pre- is pre- predominantly canola, I, I know that's a little bit of a challenge with what's going on politically in the world today. Um, that's, that's really a, a hanging a little bit on canola production and, and specifically canola, pr- canola prices. Um, but if that's the traditional three crop rotation, um, the three crops that we're primarily going to be utilizing aren't huge users of potassium. They may take up a a significant amount, but the actual amount that's removed is relatively low. So in Western Canada, when you have this combination of uh, potassium um, mineral rich soils, low weathering, 
um, crops that don't remove a lot of potassium should be no surprise that you, you you wouldn't expect to see as much potassium response in Western Canada. Now you contrast that with, with Ontario, more rainfall, a little bit lower concentration of, of potassium minerals that constitute that soil. And now we're talking about crop rotations that are corn, soybeans, heavy potassium removers. Should be no surprise that in the Eastern part of, of Canada, a much greater possibility or, or greater need for potassium fertilization uh, compared to the West what you're saying basically is that um, in terms of yield, canola wouldn't have as big of a response to potassium as some other crops would have? Yeah, in general. But in again, general. even though we we say that Western Canada, and this is the, I, I always get a little bit leery when I'm making broad statements because there's always exceptions, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and I always feel like I have to speak to the exceptions. But I, I would say the, just even based upon the information that we collect from, uh, with regard to soil test levels, I, I want to say the last number I saw, which was in 2015, was 82% of the soils in the Prairie Provinces. I think that was the right number. I'm always, again, a little bit leery when I don't have those statistics right <laughs> in front of me. Let's just say it was north of 80%. Uh, okay. 80% of the soils in Western Canada have adequate potassium supply. Okay. So that, that means in general, the need for potassium is relatively low. But I, I, I'm always leery that I'm saying this and someone or some farmer may be operating on a soil where he's not in that 82%. He's in that or in that 80%. He's at other 20%. Right. And and that really speaks to what does a farmer need to do as a manager to account for what his soil actually contains with regard to potassium. Um, and, and that's really where we, we probably want to go next with the conversation is how does a farmer know what his soil potassium level is, right? Yeah, let's get into that. So how and when should a grower test the soil for a potassium deficiency? Um, and when do those symptoms kind of become obvious? The, the general guideline that we promote is um, soil testing. Uh, there's, we can do those with regard to different timings. Fall is obviously the one that makes the most sense. <clears throat> primarily because of labor availability and I have access to the field and I get out there, collect that sample, make a decision. I can even make an application of potassium uh, if the, the weather allows. Um, so soil testing, routine soil testing, whenever a farmer or a, or a consultant or an agronomist working for a farmer collects that sample, submits it to a lab, you're going to get, that's going to be part of the routine soil analysis is going to be that potassium level. Um, and that's really the, the place that we want to begin. I'm, I, I never want to discount what a farmer experiences in growing a crop in a specific area. So we, we don't all, and I've, I think I've said this in previous podcasts and conversations with you, Stephanie, sometimes farmers don't give enough credence to, to what they observe on their farm Absolutely. And, and, and accounting for that and incorporating to that in, incorporating that knowledge into their management and just paying attention to, you know what, I, I saw some chlorosis over here, or I saw some general yellowing, yellowing. what was that? Using that kind of information that, that maybe they sweep under the rug sometimes can be absolutely critical to identifying, you know what, I never suspected I had a potassium deficiency, but I keep seeing this deficiency symptomology in the field. I'm going to do a little bit different of a, of a soil sampling approach. I'm going to target that area, collect some information. And you know what? That may reveal something to me that I never expected I would ever have to deal with. So incorporating what that farmer experiences as they're growing their crops and, and running their yield monitors through their field and just paying attention to the information that they're seeing and using that information to target uh, how we sample to capture better information so that that 
that fall soil sampling goes a long way to informing a farmer what he might need to, what he or she might need to change with regard to management to improve the pop, the profitability of their operation. Um, and just really quickly, since we're we're talking a little bit about soil testing, and we already sort of covered what potassium how it works in the soil. Really what I want to share with what we're actually capturing from the analytical side at the, at the lab level is we're actually capturing how much potassium is residing on that cation exchange capacity. Uh, so that CEC, CEC number that they typically see on the soil test reports, when we're capturing exchangeable K, that's the information that we're capturing is how much potassium resides there. Um, and that again, goes a long way to informing us, okay, if, if this is how much resides there, and, and that is a, a fraction of potassium that can relatively easily, and I mean really easily, diffuse into the soil uh, water environment and be available to a plant, um, if it's really, really high, the need for supplementation is pretty low. <laughs> so when a grower sees a low CEC number, what would be your recommendation for application methods of applying potassium? I'm going to tackle this from a couple of different perspectives. I'm going to I'm going to first talk about what do we consider deficient on the soils of Western Canada, and the, the general rule of thumb, and you're going to see some variability between the the various provinces with regard to what they identify as the, the actual critical level, but they're all relatively close in agreement, and it's somewhere around that 150 part per million. The range is probably from 120 to 150. If if a farmer is starting to experience soil test levels that low you probably should be considering a, a supplementation of potassium into that soil environment to ensure that that's not def creating a deficiency symptomology that's going to lower your yields and ultimately lower your profitability. Now, how CEC influences that is, is absolutely critical, and that's you're spot on in having that conversation. With regard to how we supply potassium, whether it's a spring or a fall, I'm going to focus right now on fall applications because rules may be a little bit different. So if, mm -hmm. if it's a fall application and I have a really low CEC, fall may not be my best option, specifically if I'm in an environment that tends to, to get fairly wet over the winter and the early spring months. Traditionally, when we think about potassium fertilization, potassium doesn't move all that much in most of our soils. And again, here's that the exception to the rule, right? The, the general rule of thumb is most of our soils, specifically in Western Canada, are, have a decent texture. So our CECs are going to be somewhere in that 8 to 15 range. You're, you'll find the occasional heavier clay soil that'll be a little bit higher than that. But that 8 to 15 range, that's going to capture a lot of our soils. With regard to timing, it really doesn't matter when that application occurs. If you're really, really, really low with regard to potassium, we probably want to make that application as a band. Um, and there's some uh, efficiency advantages to that, at least on the low end of the spectrum. Those efficiency advantages go away as my soil test level creeps higher. I wish I could give you a, a more of a hard and fast rule with regard to when band is your best option over broadcast. We really don't have a number per se, but if you're really, really deficient, which I suspect you're going to be hard pressed to find anyway, I can certainly find that in the Midwest or, or, or even the Eastern uh, Corn Belt, the Eastern United States, where we have really, really deficient potassium. We probably even find some of these in, in Southern Ontario as well. Really deficient soils with regard to K. Band is probably your best option. Um, but as you're starting to creep closer to that critical level, the difference between band and broadcast starts to get very, really blurry, and they both perform uh, similarly. But back to that coarse textured soil, if I am if I have a really coarse textured soil somewhere with that CEC south of five, um, which again, I suspect you'll find pockets of, 
those soils fall may not be my best option because I can, you know, we don't tr traditionally think of potassium as being terribly mobile in soil. And that is a true statement, but there's always those exceptions. And the exception is a really coarse textured sandy soil. There's just not enough clay in that soil or organic matter to, to stick that potassium to. That's where our CEC comes from, is from clay and organic material. If I have very little of those, potassium is going to behave a little bit more like nitrate and it can just move through that soil profile relatively quickly. So in those environments, a fall application of potassium may not be my best option um, because I can lose some of it, and maybe not lose, but certainly move deeper into that soil profile where there's a, a lower probability that that crop's gonna have the opportunity to take advantage of it. Um, so you're spot on with that CEC conversation. For everybody else, if you're close to the critical level or just below, your soil CECs are north of eight, fall, spring, it really doesn't matter with regard to, to application timing. Really what we're trying to do with that fertilizer application, I talk about this a lot with farmers, with specifically we're managing P and K, and obviously our discussion here today is on, on potassium, but the, the rules I'm about to state generally apply to phosphorus as well. We're just trying to resupply what that soil can move readily into that into the soil water to supply crop nutritional demand. That's really what we're trying to do. We're, we're treating this as like a bank account. So the, the C, what's measured on the CEC, what I'm measuring with my exchangeable K is what my balance is in my checking account. And now realize when that when that crop moves, when that the root of that crop moves into that soil in, environment, it's taking up water. As it's taking up water, it's taking up those nutrients. As those nutrients are being taken up by the root, some of that that resides in my bank account that's on that CEC is going to be released into uh, into that soil water. The plant's going to take it up. I want to have an accounting for that. And as that bank account gets relatively low, I want to resupply my bank account to ensure that it's an environment where I have enough potassium there that can move into my soil water so that the crop can ultimately utilize it. And that's really the concept of P&K management. Again, the exception being on those really, really coarse textured soils. Um, our ability to measure that, we can measure it relatively accurately, but but those environments generally don't have, enough, have a large enough um, potential bank account size to to where I can just keep banking it and, and building up my account. It just doesn't work that way if I don't have uh, a lot of cation exchange capacity. For sure. And so in talking about um, the types of potassium fertilizer that are available, does choosing uh, one over another, does that depend on the soil type that you're dealing with as well? What's the most common? How do we make that choice about which form of potassium fertilizer we should use if we do need to supplement it with it? Yes. So in the potassium space, there's we're not we don't have the the flexibility with regard to sources that we we do with with phosphorus or nitrogen we're typically limited quite a bit so we're we're talking about uh, muriate of potash which is the traditional kcl that's a lot of what is mined there in in western canada and and yeah. all over the world as a potassium uh, fertilizer source we've got sulfate of potash which is potassium sulfate a lower potassium analysis, but now it's got some some sulfur with it, so that can be beneficial for crop nutrition. And then we also have nitrate of potash or pot potassium nitrate. Again, it's probably not the best fall potassium fertilizer source, not from the pot potassium perspective, but from the nitrate perspective, we never want to make that application of a fall nitrate material. Traditionally, what has l determined what is utilized is pre predominantly price. Um, KCL or muriate of potash, potassium chloride. I say these things different ways, Stephanie, mm -hmm. so everybody listening um, 
recognize that the, all the, these three things say the same thing. Right. <laughs> um, I know we use a lot of terminology in ag, and sometimes I, I feel like we just confuse people because we're, we're, we're not terribly consistent in the way we describe things. So when I describe something, I try to give all the different ways that someone might potentially describe it. So for, for potash, KCL, muriate of potash, that's traditionally been the source that we've utilized because it's the cheapest, right? And it's primarily right. because it's relatively abundant, specifically in Western Canada where we're mining it. So it's 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 got a, a little bit better price point for the farmer. Sulfate of potash, potassium sulfate is it would probably be the second. And it's considerably more expensive than KCL, and that's traditionally made it a little bit more difficult to utilize. Potassium sulfate does have its advantages in, in certain cropping systems. Perennial crops tended to, to be a little bit chloride sensitive, so we would prime, most likely try to avoid applications of KCL in those environments, but that's certainly not going to be something that's going to be much in play in Western Canada. That's going to be more on the coastal regions uh, where you see more tree crops and things of that nature. So those are the, the, the three primary sources that we have access to uh, for crop production in, uh, across Canada. Again, KCL is probably going to be the source that most everyone's going to select because it's the cheapest. Okay, Robert, I think we've covered a lot of information here. Um, one other thing I just wanted to touch on really quickly. You did talk a little bit, and we have discussed this in the past, where farmers often don't give themselves enough credit in, in trusting their instincts and, and going with what they they see with their eyes and they and they feel with their hands. So looking at kind of just a little back to basics overview of some of those potassium deficiency symptoms, what do they physically look like in canola, in other crops? We need to address those as well. This is something very interesting, and I'm, I'm going to share a little bit of experience that we're, we're seeing in the Midwest. At least I'm reading some academic reports where they're seeing this. I don't, I can't say that this is happening in Western Canada, but it's just something to be mindful of, right? Mm-hmm. And that is, so in Iowa specifically, uh, I know the researcher there quite well, an incredible scientist, and he's actually been publishing a little bit on the observation that they're seeing potassium deficiency on soils where they wouldn't expect potassium deficiency. So th- this is where a farmer, if they can develop this skill, and it's diagnosing visual symptomology is as much an art as it is a science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this true. is coming. Yes. And this is coming from an individual that has has done this, good grief, I can't believe I'm getting this old. I've been doing this for almost 20 years now. And it is, it's, it's, it's sometimes very difficult to differentiate what I see visually with regard to what nutrient is causing the visual symptomology that I'm actually seeing. So the, the reason I bring up the, the Iowa example is these are on soils where they wouldn't have expected potassium deficiency. So the farmer's mindset is what I'm seeing can't be potassium because I don't suspect it because my soil test level says I'm fine. But when they get in looking at the visual and the visual looks like potassium, well, when they actually do the sampling, it turns out, you know what? It is in fact potassium deficiency. So developing that skill can help a farmer recognize that. I know that the soil sampling says one thing, but the crop may be telling me something different. So if you can develop that skill to readily identify, I suspect that this is potassium deficiency, even though my soil test level is relatively high. I can explain what I think is going on in Iowa. I won't bore you with all of the the details. Um, But all of this, just to illustrate, pay attention to what's going on and be able to to differentiate nutrient deficiencies. And that can be a real challenge. Um, For canola, potassium deficiency, it, it typically exhibits like it does on most crops because potassium is mobile within that plant, which means it can move. The The plant has the capability to remobilize its resources and say, hey, you know what? The roots aren't delivering enough potassium. Um, I'm sort of 
anthropomorphizing a plant here. I'm giving a plant a brain. Plants don't have brains, but <laughs> I'm just trying to illustrate a point. The roots aren't giving me enough potassium. So the plant has the capability to say, you know what? I'm going to take some of the, the stores of potassium that I've taken up in the lower leaves, and I'm going to remobilize that asset and send it further up into the canopy where the, the plant is the most photosynthetically active. And that's exactly what the plant does. And it has that capability. It can do that with nitrogen. It can do that with phosphorus. It can do that with potassium. And it can also do that with magnesium. So typically, and this is why I have to be, where I have to be a little bit cautious. Typically, you're going to see potassium deficiency in the lower part of the canopy. And it's typically going to exhibit as a yellowing. It's going to start as a yellowing along those leaf margins or the leaf edges. And that's going to proceed towards the midrib or the main vein of that leaf from the outside, um, from the leaf margin towards the vein down the leaf. It's also going to, as it gets a little bit more severe, you'll, you'll start to see that yellow tissue turn brown. And then you can also, occasionally you will see little white dead spots or blotches on the leaf, specifically on that margin. Um, and, and all of these are indicative of potassium deficiency. If you're talking about a grass crop like corn or wheat, deficiency symptom is gonna actually be fairly similar. Um, it's gonna occur along the leaf edge or the leaf margin, and it's gonna proceed from the leaf tip towards the base of the leaf that's actually connected to the petiole or the stem. And in a grass, that's obviously gonna be the stem, in a broadleaf, that's going to be the petiole. And the way I describe it is it's an inverted, it actually looks like a V, um, or actually an inverted V. So it actually should point away from the plant, from the main stem of the plant. Um, so it's, and the reason I say this is because nitrogen is going to be very similar to potassium, but the V actually points towards the plant. So as potassium deficiency uh, is exhibited along the leaf edge from the tip, it's going to proceed down the edge towards the base of the leaf but it's gonna proceed faster along the rib or along the, the leaf edges than it will down the main rib or the main vein. So it's actually gonna point away from the plant. For nitrogen, it's gonna start at the leaf tip, but as opposed to progressing faster along the leaf margin, it's gonna progress faster along the main, main rib or the main vein, and it's actually gonna point towards the plant. And the reason I say this is because farmers, and I myself have been, um, I've been accused of doing this and I've, I'm sure I've done it. I've incorrectly diagnosed potassium deficiency when in fact it's a nitrogen deficiency. Um, so again, knowing these subtle little rules can go a long way to helping a farmer identify that, oh, you know what, this isn't potassium, this is nitrogen. Oh, nope, this isn't nitrogen, this is potassium. So those are the general rules that we have for, for potassium deficiency and really how to distinguish it from, from other nutrient deficiencies that farmers might, uh, might encounter. Excellent. Robert, is there anything else that you wanted to add in talking about potassium management in canola and other crops um, and diagnosing or, or using potassium fertilizer? This is specific. It's, it's not just canola, but, but other oil seeds. Oil seeds are a little bit more salt sensitive to, than some of the other crops that we tend to grow. So just be mindful of that if you're considering in-row applications of, of a fertilizer material that's got nitrogen uh, or potassium in it. Just be really cautious with regard to those application rates. Uh, there's some really good guidelines. Consult your local agrologist. Uh, they'll be able to give you more information um, as to what is a seed safe rate. Sometimes farmers want to get a little bit aggressive, and I've experienced this myself with, with some farmers uh, across the Midwest. Start pushing the envelope a little bit, and you can get away with it once or twice, but the one time you get burned, and that was a pun, that was fully intended because you're, <laughs> you're burning that seed. Uh, when, when a farmer gets burned by that, you'll never forget it, and you don't want to experience that. That's that's an experience you want to learn from others and not yourself. 
<laughs> for sure. Okay, Robert, thanks so much for sharing all of this great information with us again today. We really love having you on the podcast and we hope you'll join us again soon. Stephanie, I appreciate it. It is always my pleasure. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. Special thanks to our podcast sponsor, Economics. To quickly make sense of today's crop nutrition research and maximize your return on investment, visit nutrient-economics.com. That's economics with a K. To catch up on all of our episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts. <laughs>